Good evening. Are you okay there? Yes, <laughs> the light. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this uh, fine fiction event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Though I think fine is far too uh, restrained a word for the astonishingly versatile, fiercely intelligent, gloriously creative and incisively critical writer we have with us tonight. It's an enormous privilege to introduce you to Dubravka Ugrezik, novelist, essayist, journalist, critic, scholar, translator and consummate uh, communicator. Dubravka was born uh, in 1949 in what used to be uh, Yugoslavia in its Republic Croatia. She earned her degrees in comparative literature and Russian language literature at the University of Zagreb and worked for 20 years in the Institute of, for Theory of Literature at Zagreb University, successfully pursuing parallel careers as a writer and, an, and a literary scholar. In that scholarly uh, field, she was particularly interested in the Russian, Russian avant-garde and was, was a respected publisher, an editor and writer in this field, as well as a rediscoverer of some great Russian uh, writers. She began writing fiction for children, uh, interestingly, uh, but was best known in the former Yugoslavia for her fiction, novels and short stories. Uh, and her novel, I'm not even going to try it, well I will try and pronounce it, uh, For Siranji Romana Reiki was given the coveted uh, NIN award for the best novel of the year. She was the first woman to ever receive this honour and her work was also uh, uh, translated into, uh, into film uh, uh, based on one of her short novels and she also has co-authored that uh, screenplay and has worked on screenplays uh, as well for movies and TV drama. Uh, in 1991, uh, the war uh, broke out in the former Yugoslavia and uh, Dubravka took a very firm uh, anti-nationalistic and uh, anti-war stand in that context. She started to write critically about nationalism, uh, both Croatian and Serbian, uh, about the stupidity of war, its criminality, and soon became uh, the target of uh, nationalistically charged media, officials, politicians, fellow writers, and just citizens in, in the frenzy that took place. She was proclaimed a traitor and a public enemy and a witch, which we may come back to ostracised and exposed uh, to media harassment and actually really forced to leave Croatia in 1993. She's continued to write uh, and uh, publish uh, acclaimed novels including The Museum of Unconditional Surrender which the title I love, I love the book as well, but it's one of the most wonderful titles uh, in literature and The Ministry of Pain and books of essays including The Culture of Lies and Thank You for Not Reading. Her essays have also appeared in a range of publications uh, internationally in the US uh, and in Europe in magazines and newspaper and she's a teacher as well, I didn't say that at the beginning, I should have said that too. Occasionally. Uh, <laughs> an occasional teacher, she's in slight denial about it obviously, an occasional uh, teacher. Her books have been translated into more than 20 languages and she's received a whole series of European literary awards. Uh, today she's going to read two short passages from her uh, Booker uh, shortlisted book Baba Yaga Laid an Egg, a virtuoso exploration of uh, femininity, ageing, identity uh, and love explored through the Baba Yaga myth. Um, so she'll read from the book first, uh, I'm going to get the conversation started and then it's over to you um, to meet and uh, exchange with this wonderful writer. Okay. I'm going to read two short um, 
two short um, uh, chapters. One is about the oldest character in my book, Pupa, and uh, about her wish to die. And the other one is about the youngest characters in my books, uh, Bosnian. Uh, I will explain when I come to that. So first about Pupa. The son of one of Pupa's patients told her that he had once taken his mother out in a, her wheelchair to sit outside the house for a while and breathe in fresh air. It was the end of November, and he had snug, snuggled her up in, the bla in blankets so that she wouldn't catch cold. He went back into the house for a moment to get his cigarettes, and then forgot what he had gone for so sat down and smoked a cigarette. Uh, in the meantime, it began to snow. And when it was getting dark and the old woman was covered in the snow like a haystack, the son remembered to his horror that she was still outside. The old lady was so senile that she did not understand what was going on. She had enjoyed watching the snowflakes and had not even caught the cold. Pupa often dreamed about how nice it would be if someone would take to take her to Greenland and forget about her, lose her, the way one loses an umbrella or, or gloves. She had reached a stage where she was unable to do anything anymore. She was like a rubber plant moved from place to place, carried out onto the balcony to have its feel of air, brought into the house so as not to freeze, regularly watered and dusted. How could a rubber plant make decisions or commit suicide? All primitive cultures knew how to manage old age. The rules were simple. When old people were no longer capable of contributing to the community, they were left to die or they were helped to move onto the next world. Like that Japanese film in which a son stuffs his mother into a basket and carries her to the top of the mountain to die. Even if elephants are cleverer than people. When their time comes, they move away from the herd, go to their graveyard, lay down on the pile of elephant bones and wait to be transformed into bones themselves. While today, hypocrites, appalled by the primitive nature of former customs, terrorize their old people without the slightest pang of consciousness. They are not capable of killing them or looking after them, or building proper institutions, or organizing proper care for them. They leave them in dying rooms, in old people's homes, or if they have connections, they prolong their stay in geriatric wards, in hospitals, in the hope that the old people will turn up their toes before anyone notices that their stay there was unnecessary. In Dalmatia, people treat their donkeys more tenderly than their old people. When their donkeys get old, they take them off in boats to uninhabited islands and leave them there to die. Pupa once set foot on one of those donkeys' graveyards. 
She, who had helped so many babies in the world, cut who knows how many umbilical cords, who had so often heard the child's first cry, she at least deserved to have someone sensible extinguish her, ex extinguish her, the way lights were extinguished in houses so as not to waste electricity. That is what she kept trying to explain to Zorana. But Zorana had resolved to respect medical rules rather than show any empathy. Zorana did not understand her. Zorana, who had spent her whole life accusing her, Pupa, of not understanding her. To start with, Pupa had resisted and defended herself. Then for a long time, she had felt guilty. Then finally she admitted that Zorana was right, at least in one respect. No, she really did not understand. She could not, for example, understand why Zorana agree, agreed to live with a husband who was a notorious creep. Some 18 years ago, something in him had responded to, to the call of Croatian nation, nationhood, and he had vehemently supported the government of that time, shouting from the rooftops that all Serbs should be slaughtered, and suggesting in passing that neither Muslims nor Jews had much more appeal. Overnight, the man had become an anti-communist and a devout Christian hung Catholic crosses around Zorana's and the children's necks, and a portrait of one of his ancestors, an Ustasha cutthroat, on the wall. And what do you know? His zeal pay paid off. He was appointed manager of a hospital, slipped deeply into the, some kind of financial embezzlement, and they, Zorana and he, became part of the newly minted Croatian elite, who Pupa had watched on television while she still could, at New Year receptions hosted by the president of the state, at concerts and at exhibitions open openings. And that creep went so far as to accuse her, Pupa, and her commie friends of being to blame for everything, being part of a bloody git conspiracy. And when he said something ironic about Zorana's father, calling him his stupid Serbian father-in-law, who had the good fortune to be in his grave, Pupa threw him out of her house. This was more than 15 years ago, and the creep had never set foot there again. Sometimes she felt that Zorana was punishing her, that she was keeping her alive so that she would at last open her eyes and realize how much things had changed and that her life and values no longer had anything to do with the new reality. Meanwhile, she, Pupa, was spared the great revelation by an ordinary old age blindness. She could no longer read or watch television. She felt as though she was living in the bottom of, of a well. And it was not only that the world around her had become invisible, she herself 
had become invisible. She sat in her wheelchair, imagining that snow was falling around her. She watched the fat flags in the air and was surprised not to feel cold. The snowflakes kept on and on falling and she imagined hibernating, hi hibernating under a snowy blanket until the spring, until it got warm and the snow melted. And she could already see a little heap of her own white bones appearing out of the melting snow. The next short chapter is about a character uh, which is called Mevludin and um, he's a Bosnian young refugee working as a masseur, uh, masseur in a wellness center and um, uh, he doesn't speak English but he's deeply in love uh, with American girl. It is not true that Mevludin knew no English at all. He knew a lot, of course he did. That is why he said to the girl who was standing, standing in front of him, crying bitterly, I'm sorry, I understand the full extent of your damage. Mevlo knew that kind of BBC and CNN English, and he was in a position to enunciate eloquently such sentences as, there has been no let up in the fighting in Bosnia. Heavy shelling continued throughout the night. Mevludin knew a lot. He knew about peace negotiations, about ceasefires, and the ceasefire appears to be holding. He also knew about sporadic gunfire, prog progress towards a settlement, wail of ambulance sirens, sirens, the horror of the early morning blast. He knew all about a pool of blood, explosion, reminders of horror, and many, many other things. That is why he said to the girl, stay calm but tense. <laughs> Mevla remembered the sentence, the atmosphere in the city remains calm but tense as the ceasefire appears to be holding. And he was sure that his words would comfort the girl. The girl glanced at him in a horror as though she had come face to face with smelly socks and went on sobbing. Mevla considered what he could do to console the girl. Then he remembered the check that Mr. Shaker had given him. He took it out of the little pocket in his jacket, tapped the girl on the shoulder and said, look, take it. The girl looked at him with the same expression as though there were smelly socks in front of her nose. <laughs> leaned her elbows on the table, laid her head on her folded arms as on a pillow, and continued to cry. Look! Mevludin tore the check into little pieces and tossed the pieces into the air like confetti. 
For a moment, the girl watched the little pieces of paper floating through the air, stopped crying, and then remembered that she had been crying and laid her hand back on the table, arranging her folded arms like a pillow and carried on crying. Mevludin looked at her, lovely round shoulders, shaking with sobs. He felt helpless. Oh, for God's sake, love, do stop crying. You're going to melt clean away. And then, what I'll have left? Tepid water? Mevludin whispered in his Bosnian, a language Rosie <coughs> could not understand. And then Mevludin thought that maybe the girl was hungry. She had probably not eaten anything all day. And he had some food in his bag that he had forgotten about, a boiled egg and a slice of bread. Mevla placed the boiled egg and the slice of bread in front of the girl. For a moment, she raised her face out of the tangle of her copper-colored hair and then laid her forehead back on the pillow of her folded arms. Her sobs were slightly weaker, or so it seemed to him. Mabel took the egg and started to peel it. And what do you know? As he was peeling the egg, out of the blue, Mevlo was visited by a life-saving recollection. Once, while he was massaging one of his guests, the guest had demanded that they play him his favorite song during the massage. And he had explained the words of the song so that Mevlo remembered it. When he left, the guest had even presented him with a CD. You are my thrill, said Mevlo. The sobs stopped, but the girl still did not move. You do something to me. <laughs> the girl was as still as a little bug. Nothing seems to matter. The girl was silent. Here is my heart on a silver platter, he said, handling the girl the egg. The girl peeled her forehead off the table and, without looking at Mevlo, took the egg with her pink child's finger. First she nibbled the end indifferently and then went on nibbling the egg gazing at an imaginary point in front of her. Mevlo crumbed bread with his fingers. He could see, as though through a magnifying glass, a little drop of yolk trembling on the girl's lip. A leftover tear slipped out of her eye and came to rest on the drop of yolk. Mevlo broke off a piece of bread picked up the drop of yolk and the tear with it and put it into his mouth. The girl watched him with wide open eyes. In that instant, Mevlo felt that the tension eight inches below his navel was easing, as though something heavy had broken off him and fallen soundlessly onto the floor. 
Mevlo knew perfectly well what was happening. Just as the wretched shell had cast a spell on him, so this girl with the egg in her hand had broken it. Where is my will? Why this strange ceasefire? whispered Mevlo. The girl smiled, those copper freckles on her face began to shine with a miraculous glow, and her wide apart greenish eyes sparkled like two little pools. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Um, it's a rather strange thing to see, uh, though, though perhaps not so strange in the context of uh, Baba Yaga, that I first knew you as a witch. I actually hadn't ah. even read your books. Yeah. I'd read Slavenka Draculic and I'd started yeah. reading about her. And I, another um, witch. Yeah, and another yes. witch. I think, yeah. there, I think there were three of you. I can't actually remember the no, name of the other. Of us. Five of yeah, you. Yeah, and even more later. And I think that... Um, you know, you were branded as witches for your lack of patriotism, really, and yes. your outspoken attitudes. And I just wondered just what that ostracization, that hatred, was it deeply shocking to you or expected? Was it shocking even though expected? No, I was, I was very naive. And, um, and I thought that, yes, I mean, uh, we will or I will have, uh, and my other colleagues, fellow writers, they will have opportunity to, to explain themselves, to provoke some polemics, some talks, some public talks. But, but no, I mean, we were simply suppressed. Mm. I mean, we, were, we became, uh, we were manipulated, in fact. So we became a perfect target, you yes. know. So um, anybody could, I mean, with our case, in fact, which hunt was opened in Croatia for all the people who didn't think like uh, like the leading um, uh, leading political uh, authorities? Yes. And uh, it was easy. I mean, we were easy target because we were women. We were individuals. We're still relatively young we didn't women. Have you were relatively young women, though, all of you. Oh. Uh, yeah. Although, um, uh, although um, all those attackers, uh, I mean, they didn't think so. So we were proclaimed as ugly, which is old, uh, frustrated. Uh, I mean, all that repertoire of, of male chauvinists, you know, um, rhetorics. So. And that experience is that that fed into this book, presumably as well. There was a kind of reservoir of. A, a real understanding of persecution um, and that terminology around the idea of the word witch and that designation. No, I think that um, it's a it's a logical choice, you know, in all such constellations, political constellations, um, at, to proclaim women or woman or several women a witch. It's. Uh, it's uh, traditional. It's old-fashioned. It's logical. It's the first it's choice. Yeah. It's automatic. So, so women are witches and whores. I mean, there are no other, uh, or of course, mothers of the nation. But we were not on that side. So, oh, maybe explore that motherhood yeah. thing as well in a moment. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your relationship with your former 
home now? What remains of the relationship you had with it? Um, Amsterdam's your home now. It's yeah, not your home. Yeah, of course it, it, it will always be a sort of a home. I mean, because I lived there and um, uh, I mean, my background is, is that background, so I can't deny it. Uh, it always is going to be a part of a, of a devastated home, <laughs> I would say. Uh, and that concerns the, the area of the whole former Yugoslavia. So. Yeah. Um, how different do you think your career would have been as a writer if you'd stayed there? I mean, it has significantly shifted perhaps your exposure to a wider If audience. I would stay there, it would be perfect. It would be much better than it is now. Okay. I would be uh, probably, if I would say something nice in favor of President Tujman or somebody or all those nationalists, I would be probably a court writer uh, because there were those people and they, they're still there, I mean. Um, then I would probably get some nice um, ambassadorial post, diplomatic <laughs> post, so that I would even choose whether I would like Indonesia or Egypt. And uh, there are a lot of writers from Croatia, from Serbia, especially from uh -huh. Serbia, uh, who were awarded by ambassadorial posts. For their faithfulness yeah, to Yeah, a friend of mine, he's ambassador in Vienna, the other one is in Portugal. Uh, my former acquaintance, Croat, mm. he's an ambassador in some very exotic, nice country. Um, so, the one is running an embassy in uh, America, a Croat, he was a uh, librarian. So, if you are librarians, there is a chance for you. <laughs> Not in Scotland, I don't think. <laughs> Uh, but in a way, this moving in, you, would you do you think you would have remained as a Croatian writer? I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why you would want to do that. Of course, but I, I, would, that I would have exposure. my audience, I would have yeah. my literature. But you do have an I audience would have here. my readers. Is it important for you to have a wider audience as well, though? Because I think in many ways... Now I'm an yeah. orphan who reads yeah, okay. me reads me, and I'm thankful. <laughs> okay, so that relationship with a Croatian readership matters. Would have mattered to you? Um... Uh, yeah, but yeah, but they do read some of them. Yeah. They do read me, of course. Yeah. And then I, I never really, I never had those ambitions to be mm. read by the whole world. Or, well, too late. Or now. all the crowds <laughs> and all the set. Um, I suppose I'm also interested in how your, how your exile, how your feelings about that have changed as you've got older as well. Um, I mean, in, in a way, exile, dislocation, estrangement yeah. are all territories that you explore yeah. uh, in, in the domain of Baba Yaga as yes, well. Yeah, and I just yeah. wonder how that's shifted. Yeah. Hmm. Ah, you mean the reason that who is going to give me the last glass of the water? <laughs> <laughs> Whether it will be at home or on the street. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm not thinking in those. I don't know. I mean... It's, I can't, um, or at least I, I, I didn't contemplate mm. uh, on the, that. I know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking also about...
Baba Yaga is flying. It's terrible. Very I'm moment. afraid it's the Edinburgh military tattoo. Um, uh, no, I'm also thinking about whether some of what's fed into this book as well has been a kind of a, a kind of sense or a, a greater intensity of the the unhappinesses and that are involved in being exiled and being older as well. No, I don't think so because it's a very little of those. Um, it's it's more about other things than. You see that those things are very discreet. I have read mm. this this um, uh, little piece, yes. but this is almost the only one. A piece yes. about uh, Pupa's um, uh, irritation mm. by her daughter because she's married uh, to a Croatian nationalist. Mm. But this is oh, the no, only it's a tiny. It's interesting. You did select yeah, that. Yeah, tiny bit. But otherwise, I mean, there are not much of mm. a little bit about mm. transition because old ladies are going to. Czech Republic to a wellness center, so a mm. little bit about that, but but mostly it's um, it's um, it is not permeated with yes. with the, some uh, reality, political reality. Yeah. Um, yes, of course, I I I want it very much, uh, but it is more on symbolic level than uh, yeah. this so-called Slavic mm. world. So. That's why this um, Czech wellness center is not Italian wellness mm. center, mm. although the old ladies could afford that too. So um, um, that's why Bulgarian, yes. Czech, yeah. Croat, this and that, Bosnian, uh, because of that Slavic myth of, of Baba Yaga. You've heard a little bit of plea on language in that fantastic last <laughs> passage, and so as language and its effectiveness is something that you've explored in, yeah. in a whole series of work, and I suppose also language and its ability to express, well, their intense emotion, but also yeah. tr trauma as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that the, there's a there's an, an, a character in the Ministry of Pain, a, yeah. an educated narrator, um, who kind of struggles with that, and I again. There's a sense that you don't believe in the effectiveness of language sometimes yeah. to express those uh, great yeah. extremities, yeah. and I wonder if, if your faith in that effectiveness has grown as you've kind of grown as a writer, or whether really mm. in the end it's all about just becoming more uh, vir having more virtuosity about expressing language's inability to do those things. Yeah, no, it's a very complex question, yeah. you know, because. Um, uh, it, it, it is not uh, only my opinion and what I'm doing, but it's um, uh, generally speaking, I mean, li literature, I, language is a tool of literature, but we also do live in a globalized world. I mean, uh, languages, um, they, they penetrate into each other. I mean, uh, we all witness all kinds of mixtures and, uh, you know, enrichment of you have Spanglish, you have uh, whatever you want to. I mean, in, in, in Netherlands, young people, they speak Smurfental or Smurf language um, uh, because of those little blue characters, cartoon characters. Uh, Smurfs, and uh, which is mixture of many languages of immigrants, because Holland is also an immigrant country. There are more than hundred nationalities mm. living there. So you have this process of um, mixing languages. Then also, you have 
changes in literature itself, in a notion what literature is. Uh, you have different genres, different approach. Uh, everything is different than it was 30 years ago. So, because, or even more, I mean, uh, a lot is taken from literature, you know, by, by film, uh, visual uh, arts, video, uh, almost everything is taken from it. So literature struggles to work with what it has mm. left, you know, because of course you, you notice that it is senseless to describe interiors or, or the countryside because you have much better ability to do that with uh, camera than, than with the words. So, but there are other ways. And I think that, that um, uh, uh, what's going on um, and how literature will develop, we will have two totally opposite uh, you know, tendencies. One tendency, and I'm not talking about bad uh, high, low, uh, whatever. I'm just talking about uh, literary practice without any evaluation. So you will have primitivization of literature at one point, and you already have such writers. Uh, you can't believe how popular they are, or they have many prizes, and they are highly evaluated. But in fact, it's a literature of 18th century, <laughs> you know. And nobody notices that, and nobody even, uh, you know, finds that there is something strange going on. So you will have a uh, uh, tendency of literature, fiction, going back to its beginnings, mm. you know. Um, the novel and, particularly. Or you will have, and you will have the opposite tendency of making complications you know, uh, to make reading really complicated, to be demanding for the reader and so on. Why I'm talking to you? didn't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I think we should talk about Baba Yaga. And, and this was a, this is in a series, a myth series, Canon Gate myth series. Did you choose Baba Yaga? Did they come to you with Baba Yaga? Or did they, how did this come about? And, and why her? Why her? Mm. Because I was offered to choose a myth. Mm -hmm. And I was, um, um, how should I say, I was um, wisely stupid. Uh, I was wisely stupid because I thought that I'm expected, uh, coming from that area, to bring something Slavic to the family of myths. And I just said, yes, Baba Yaga. And Baba Yaga, and I wrote um, um, synopsis, and it was accepted, my Baba Yaga. But then I thought, oh my god, why I could choose some nice, like, important mm -hmm. myths, you know? So uh, other people are really, they've chosen important things, like, I mean, Odysseus or whatever. And so I, I I got stuck with my choice, and and then I realized that I'm not sorry at all, but that, in fact, 
it was uh, it was a correct choice. And can you tell us about Baba Yaga? Who she is. Um, but you have it. Uh, I mean, all mythologies have uh, have this old hack. Um, so she's an old hack, old witch, and there is no uh, language, uh, country, culture who does not know that character. So um, um, yes, let's say in Croatia, in Serbia, she does not have any stories. She just exists like somebody who is frightening little children. Mm -hmm. So mothers would say um, in, in air, Balkan areas, because we are tough, you know. <laughs> so mothers would say, um, be good. Otherwise, Baba Yaga would come and eat you. So, but, but there is no story. In Russian fairy tales, in fact, Baba Yaga became a, an interesting character. And I would say Russian, Ukrainian, Polish, um, Czech, Slovak. You Did know. you find this out in research, or were you aware of this through your kind of Russian? No, I did. Yeah. I did yeah. Uh, yeah. research. So, uh, so yes, there are sort of, you know, like debate whether she is a mythical character or not, whether she is just a literary character because she came to us readers um, through fairy tales. You know, through through fairy tales, which are um, which are that folk oral, um, uh, they are not written. I mean, but they uh, they were collected, especially in 18th century in Russia. So there are many many stories. Where does she come from? There is a theory which is fantastic that she is coming from old pre-Christian. Uh, believes that there is a golden Baba um, um, uh, from the time of matriarchs. Ma matriarch. Can someone out there say it? So that that she was a goddess, this golden Baba, and that uh, when um, priests and um, uh, she came. She penetrated into fairy tales um, thanks to people who went to those remote areas uh, of Siberia, tribes, and so on, and who tried to Christianize them, you know. So thanks to priests, uh, to soldiers, um, and Baba Yaga somehow um, in those retellings, this golden Baba, she became sort of humanized, um, uh, she became grotesque, she became evil, she became, she lost her uh, characteristic as a goddess. So this is one theory, but there are many. All in all, all of I which mean, which you can experience in the book, I suppose. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> and the women that you've, I mean, you've chosen, I mean, you've chosen a very, um, uh, I mean, what's the word? You, you, the book comes in, it's a, a triptych, really. It comes in three parts. Yeah. But there is a kind of wonderful story, a kind of contemporised version of, uh, of the 
yeah. and Bayaga's story yeah. and, and, and tell us a bit about the women. I mean, we've yeah. met one of them already, Pupa, but yeah. the woman that you've chosen to kind of explore it with. Yeah. First of all, I wanted to do, um, I wanted to do three uh, different narratives. So first part is a story about my aging mother. And let's say it is not a memoir because um, it's a sort of very flat, um, I would say even called, intentionally called, um, uh, anamnesis of her amnesia, I would say that. So, so um, following precisely, trying, to, I'm observer in that part, um, and catching the details of of aging, of uh, of um, 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 uh, so so um, um, in that part. Um, there is a story within the story, you know, like those Russian babushkas. Um, um, a story about Bulgarian, um, Bulgarian scholar, she's very much in folk studies, um, Bulgarian scholar whose name is Abba, and author, me, and Abba, uh, they're going to Varna. My mother was born in Varna, and I'm playing a role of Bedel. Bedel is a very old word. I, I, I think that it's coming from Turkish. I'm not quite sure. But that was a function because rich people uh, who could not, who were so old and could not go to Mecca, um, uh, to their pilgrimage, yearly pilgrimage, they would pay and send a surrogate. So that surrogate was called Bedel. And um, so in that I'm playing my mother's Bedel, her surrogate, I'm going to the place where she was born and where she spent her childhood and her young years to bring her something, some memories back. And I'm followed uh, by this young Bulgarian uh, folk, uh, folklorist. Uh, the folklorist yeah. scholar. And that's the first part. Uh, so, and it is written in first person narration. It's Second too intimately part. detailed to be called. It is not called, oh, okay. but anyway. <laughs> so, so second part is a more like a novel. Um, and it is about, yeah, in the first part, uh, my best, the oldest friend of my mother is Pupa, a gynecologist, and uh, she's a character she often calls. Uh, so in the second part, which is, which is a traditional novel, with the plot, with the characters, with the many things which are happening, with the happy end and so on, um, uh, there are three major ladies, they're called Pupa, Kukla, and Beba. In fact, uh, these words are all words for the doll, too. Mm. You know, Kukla being uh, Turkish, Russian, and so on, a version of the same. And, um, and those three old ladies, uh, the oldest is Pupa, they are coming to very fancy Czech 
Wellness Center uh, to spend some time. And, um, and things are happening there because you have other characters, a rich American who is called Mr. Shaker, his daughter Rosie. There is a Bosnian refugee who works uh, as a masseur and he is as beautiful, uh, much more beautiful than Clooney. And, um, and, and so on. So, And the third part is written by a um, scholar called Abba Bangai. And it is her letter, private letter to editor, uh, answer on his request, on his question, how much uh, those two parts, uh, which was sent to him by the author, correspond with the myth, myth of Baba Yaga. So, and she tries to answer him uh, how much they do correspond. And so we, we are having through that third part, in fact, um, a sort of, um, let's say, um, an expertise, an expert's reading of the, of the text. And we learn a lot about, about um, Baba Yaga is a character, otherwise Baba Yaga is not mentioned in two first two parts. But very present. And <laughs> it's called, I think it's called Baba Yaga for Beginners. The last yeah, and Baba Yaga for Beginners. It's fantastic, True. that's a fantastic summary, <laughs> but there's so much richness in there. Um, do we have any questions out there on Baba Yaga or any of other? Yes? Hang on for a second, we'll just get the microphone to you. Thank you very much for, for the lovely readings. Um, I'm very interested in, in the myth series as such, and I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how it works and what kind of guidelines you got and how they kind of affected your writing. I didn't, I mm. didn't get any guidelines. Basically. No, it's totally, I mean, mm. um, you don't get anything. I mean, it's mm. your, these are all serious authors. Choose your myth. So, and then so do your thing. It's their, their business, what they're going to do, yeah. what they're going to choose, how they're going to deal <coughs> with myth uh, or not or what. So it's totally make them their no own. instructions. You make them your own. You know? Yeah, of yeah. course, yeah. No, no, because I was just wondering, you said that you, um, uh, you felt like you wanted to bring something Slavic or that you were expected to bring something Slavic to, to yeah, the series. Yeah. So, um, but that was your own thoughts then? It wasn't yeah, but that was stupid else. because you can't bring anything national. Uh, you <laughs> think that you're bringing national. You think that you're bringing Baba Yaga is typically Slavic. But it's not because everybody has its own Baba Yaga. And this is the beauty of the myth. Uh, it's uh, simply, it's a huge, huge um, a sort of, uh, if you can imagine, I mean, a sort of, I don't know, internet sites, for instance, with, with um, stories which are more or less the same, you know. Have we got another question out there? As the rain comes down, are we all shy? Yeah, lady, lady on the second row, and then gentleman in the third row. 
how was your book translated? Were you involved in the translation into English? It's a remarkable act, in yeah, fact. Yeah, that's a remarkable. Uh, um, that was, in fact, my suggestion that we should take three translators. And I know that it was, it was a big risk. Uh, but from the other hand, I thought if we have three different narratives, um, if one person translates that, it will be visible. But if you have three different people, then you will get what I wanted to get, you know. And more than that, um, the third part is translated with a person who is not professional translator, you know, who speaks the language, but but um, uh, the Croatian language, I mean. But uh, he never really did any translations, so so that was also risky. But I think that that the result is marvelous. I I don't know. They're stylistically so different, you know, yeah. because she is so amazing at kind of exploring yeah. the combination is her yeah. creation as well but each piece is astonishing in itself yeah. as a kind of not just a stylistic exercise but uh, an exploration through style um, and yeah, uh, yeah it really the translation works brilliantly and um, the, the whole point of the novel is how do they talk together those parts you know how do they correspond how do they give sense to each other for me, it was much more interesting than to write, let's say, one story with one plot. Gentlemen. Talked a lot tonight about the, the myths we have in common. Uh, I'm interested in how that might contrast with the, the, myths, the myths in like the Ministry of Pain, which is much darker about the myths that separate us. And I wonder if you might say a little about that. Yeah. <coughs> I think that... Um, First of all, um, I, I, don't, I don't think that it will be arrogant to say, but um, there are two kinds of writers. I think that you have heard that millions of times that the writer would say, in, in fact, I'm writing one book all my life. So I'm the opposite. I don't like to write one book all my life. So, and I'm trying to, every time, to write something really different, you know, a different procedure, uh, uh, a different language, different story. In that respect, um, I really can't see much um, of, a, of a connection, you know, or, or I can't see it simply. These are like di different stories. Maybe you can help me. Maybe you see better than I do. <laughs> yeah. 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 But of, of yeah. different kind, you know. This is. Yeah. 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 I mean, there, there's there are. I mean, um, Museum of Unconditional Surrender and Ministry of Pain. They're quite mournful. And, yeah. and you, there is a kind you could say there's some of your work that's more fun, some that's more playful, yeah. perhaps as well. Yeah. There are, yeah. yeah. 
So there are there are things that connect yeah. some of your work. You're not reinventing it every single time. I mean, if no. you lost your sense of humour altogether, <laughs> we'd be desperate. <laughs> You're depriving yourself and yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, have we got another yeah. question out there? Well, I suppose I want to. Did you have lots of fun with this one particularly? <laughs> it just I, feels I like you've had really. enormous fun. Yes, yes, I yeah. did. Yeah, and fun playing That's with them. I, I think one of the, um, despite the fun, I think one of the most disturbing moments. Oh, you're there, sorry. I am the It's because you're sort of in the dark slightly. <laughs> Shout. Is there another one up there as well? Beg your um, pardon. I, I was just wondering if um, Baba Yaga had a sort of trans transformative effect on you, you know, what you gain personally from writing about her. I don't know much about her myself, but I'm just, so I, I just remember reading about her as being. Um, uh, a goddess or whatever who sort of breaks down boundaries in people, you know, sort of shattering sort of stereotypes or limitations in people. And I wondered if it had an effect on yourself no. in writing about her. What concerns writing and the style, um, uh, writing about old ladies, yes. I returned back to my very youngish style, you know, because in... in um, um, I used to write that that type of a fiction, let's say, playing with with uh, with literature and with with um, literary patterns and uh, and language uh, when I was um, when I was young. So um, writing about the old ladies made me younger. So this is the paradox. Uh, this is one thing. Another thing which made me really. Uh, angrier and older is that uh, willy-nilly I got really sort of involved in in um, in that theme, you know, but in a very concrete um, uh, I don't know I, I found myself watching documentary about Swiss documentary about Swiss old people sent to Thailand or Taiwan Thailand um, uh, to nurse Thailand nursing homes, you know, I, um, the, the, because of my mother, um, I, I did research and I visited old nursing homes in Croatia, um, um, in Zagreb area, and um, I learned absolutely fantastic things about that world, which nobody knows. Uh, until you have your old parents, you know. And people, uh, this is a shame. This is a shameful thing. Nobody wants to talk about that, you know. So you are, for instance, I found such a unbelievable, totally crazy fact that, uh, for instance, uh, owner of nursing home in Croatia is getting a contract to import 100 old Japanese people. Apparently, it is much cheaper for Japanese uh, children to bring their parents to Croatia and visit them three times a year than to uh, uh, look after them in, in Japan. So I visited and a nursing home in New York just to see how things are done there. 
Um, I've read Simone de Beauvoir's book about about aging. I did a lot of a lot of things, you know, because when you do something, it's like a magnet. Oh. So it's like a magnet. No, I'm too old. <laughs> oh, too loud. And too old. Um, so, so, I mean, this obsession with the theme um, was a sort of a of a magnet. So all kind of things, information, stories from life, all kind of things were coming to me. You know, so that was you asking about transformative in uh, yeah it was a sort of of course transformative because i i found out um a very sad very serious part of 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 our lives you know and um and then of course there are uh, some demographers uh, some specialists who think that in fact uh, aging is a problem much bigger than global warming um, because um, it's simply it's very complicated it's complicated in all the aspects uh, so um, I think if you read I think I, I feel like I'm much more conscious of all sorts. It's yeah. transformative for the reader as well, even coming on the bus here today because I was thinking oh, about the book. Yeah. Yeah. I just, the bus was just partly because there were lots of people of a particular age determined to get out to go and see a con. I mean, it's a festival, mm -hmm. and the bus was just full of um, pupas and kuklas, and it was just full of really <laughs> wonderfully determined, all shapes and sizes, very old women. It was fantastic, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, we've got one more question, I think, from uh, to this, yeah. this gentleman up here, and then we're going to have to stop. I'll give you, get you. Okay. Oh, oh, we oh. share it. Oh, goodness, there you go. <laughs> Sorry. Just this last question, and then. Um, but she'll be over the road signing. So anyone that has anything else to ask. I was just wondering how much uh, the language has changed since uh, the wars in the early nineties. You sort of uh, take it in. Uh, the 70s and 80s, you'd have been writing in Serbo-Croat, or was it still Croatian yeah. then? Or, I mean, have you noticed a difference, or is there a difference? You know what? In fact, again, a paradox, which is very interesting paradox. Uh, uh, my language, usually people think that, yeah, if you live in emigration, in exile, then your language is becoming archaic, right? So this is the usual story. In my case, because I'm a lucky girl, what happened is that my language got uh, younger, and those languages back home in order to separate, to divorce, in order to become, for Croatian, to become more Croatian, for Serbian to become more Serbian, they got more archaic. And I still have this Serbo-Croatian, which is like a Spanglish. It's not, because Serbian and Croatian, they are like mixture in between Irish, Scottish, Welsh, 
uh, English, so something like that. Uh, and as you notice, that nobody obeys anymore this idea and the rule about clean, high, raw language. But people now, they they like this 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 the way pe people talk. So for me, it is a pleasure to watch, let's say, British television. Exactly because of that, before you could not hear all those you know, speeches and dialects and talks. Now you do. You 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 hear them in the movies, on the on television, everywhere. So in that respect I am I got lucky because of the development of things, you know. Well I think we got lucky tonight. A fantastic event. Thank you so much for the reading, thank for sharing the conversation with us, and thank all of you as well. So Dubrak will be signing books just next door. Is that right? Yes, next door. Um, so please come and join us and uh, buy this fabulous book, or any of our other books, actually. But um, this is particularly joyous. Thank you.